0: Welcome to Lift Off from your friends at Relay
1: FM. Brought to you this time by Squarespace. Lift Off is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. Government budgets this week. Mm. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason Snell.
0: I uh, yield the rest of my time to the distinguished gentleman from Tennessee. Distinguished, I like that. Well, I mean. I could distinguish. I can pick you out of a lineup. That's what distinguish means, right? <laughs> He's the one who did it. Uh, we're back. We got a yeah. lot of
1: stuff to talk about today, uh, Stephen. Before we
0: do that, mm-hmm. I gotta, I got a bone to pick with you because you stole, you stole something and put it in a different podcast. And I, that I, I was like, come on, you're cheating. You're cheating. You're cheating because the latest episode of Ungenius is about space and related subjects. Well, it's
1: about Mm. (laughs) pre-space. We did an episode of Ungenius. It's a show I have on the network with Mike Curley. We talk about topics we find on Wikipedia. They're actually all sent in by listeners, as was this topic. Uh, We talked about NACA, the uh, precursor to NASA. It's a 10-minute episode. We could dive into this history more on Liftoff Mm. in much greater detail. There's a lot of stuff that in a ten-minute podcast, you gotta throw stuff overboard left and right. I don't even want to talk about it now. No, I'm just go listen to that.
0: Um,
1: it's <laughs> fine. Listen. Yeah, so it is cool. It's it's very interesting <laughs> where NASA came from and how much work by NACA still influences aeronautics today. Like it is, right. it has a huge legacy in both air and you know space flight and yeah, breaking the sound talks, barrier. I mean, we talk about space, and so we talk about NASA. We're
0: talking about the S. Part of NASA, but that's for that first A, Aeronautics is not only the history of the organization before it was given the charter to do space, but it's still like when I went to Moffett Field for one of those NASA social things, like they do some serious stuff about aeronautical research. Right? It's not all, um, it's not all flying into space. It's also flying around in the atmosphere and Mm -hmm. doing test planes and using a wind tunnel to check about uh various vehicles and how they're going to perform in atmospheres and like that's still a big part that doesn't get as much attention but a big part of nasa
1: absolutely so if you're interested in that uh, go check that out i think you will enjoy it
0: all right pre-flight checklist time prefect i got i'm just gonna tease something i got a really good uh backronym coming later you do but we should probably start with commercial crew because this as we know this is the second consecutive year of commercial crew (laughs) at least for one company
1: (laughs) boeing Mm. may have a third
0: yeah it's been tough to be boeing isn't it like Mm -hmm.
1: it's bad bad Mm -hmm. it's it's bad so we have been talking about the starliner uncrewed test that took place in December where they were going to launch it, go up to the space station, dock, come back, splash down, all that good stuff. It became apparent that day that something had gone wrong. It came out in the days following that the spacecraft had the wrong mission elapsed timer that was set incorrectly. So it was off by like 11 hours. And that meant the spacecraft didn't know the sequences that it needed to follow to fire thrusters at certain points to get into the orbit it needed. In that conversation, uh part of the conversation was had astronauts been on board that this would have been something they could have overridden and they could have f- right. flown the starliner safely to the space station because when you have humans there you they can turn off the automation and you know reset things manually fly if you have to. And you know NASA was going to investigate but it seemed like this was sort of A closed story. And then a couple of weeks later, another story made it out. We spoke about this last episode that uh, a set of or like the thrusters had burned in such a way where some of them were out of fuel. Some didn't light the way they were supposed to. Something going on with the thrusters was potentially a second problem in addition to this mission elapsed timer error. And now we know a lot more. So NASA has talked about this. There is an official investigation that won't wrap up for several more weeks. But NASA, in in their words, in a move of transparency around the Commercial Crew program, uh, have shared a little bit more about the uh, the thruster issues. It seems like software, more software problems. And the heart of this is that. When the command and service module separate, because the, the command module is what comes back, and it, it touches down in the desert, the service module gets burned up in the atmosphere. When those separate, there's supposed to be a burn on the service module side to move it away from the crew capsule so they can separate safely. And that maneuver was set up incorrectly and had... These thrusters done, you know, what this error told them to do, there's a potential for the service module to collide with the crew capsule, which is, it could be fatal to astronauts, right? If you're talking about things moving very quickly, a lot of mass, that's a very dangerous situation to be in. This is essentially
0: what happened, a version of what happened with that Soyuz abort a while ago, which was something happened where there were things bumping against other things. And it's not like don't want it. No, don't. you don't.
1: Mm-mm. You don't want it. Uh, there, in addition to this, there is a third error we we talked about early on, where the capsule seemed to be while this was going on, uh, while the timer was causing issues. There were uh, pockets of time where the capsule and the ground couldn't communicate, and there are some blackout areas in orbit. Right, but it seems like on top of that, there were issues with the. Uh, the communication system communicating with the spacecraft. So it seems like at this point, Boeing and NASA say it was not an issue with the antenna on the spacecraft, but there was what they call a high no- noise floor on the ground side of things. So you have a lot of noise in the signal that weakens the signal to the spacecraft. It it, it adds garbage to that signal. And they said it could be attributed to frequencies associated with cell phone towers, which you remember that story a while back? I don't, so I'm not saying this is related, but like we've been talking about how 5G could, because of where its spectrum is, could cause issues in other areas. I don't know if that's right. what this is or not. They didn't really get into detail on this point, but clearly there's something going on with the communication system as well. That's three pretty bad things.
0: Yeah. And for a mission, and they're still not saying, they're like, well, we're still looking into it, but. For a mission that already had problems and didn't do its thing getting to the ISS, and they're like, "Well, we might not need to if it's not a crew safety issue." I would say the errors are mounting now, yeah. and I have a hard time believing that NASA isn't going to ask Boeing to run another test. And I think I think we made a mention this last time, but like Boeing is now allocated to do another test like Mm -hmm. they've already started doing all of the work to uh have the equipment ready so that they can take their next uh next capsule i think and use it and work on another one like they are already budgetarily planning for the possibility that they're going to have to do another test and obviously these tests are very expensive but it's hard to imagine that they're going to let them put people in the starliner um without more testing after this
1: If you read what uh, was in this NASA release, uh, I'm going to read part of it because the language is really pretty damning. So regarding the first two anomalies, the team found two critical software defects that were not detected ahead of flight despite multiple safeguards. Ground intervention prevented loss of the vehicle in both cases. Uh, this is sort of the, <laughs> the rough part. Breakdowns in the design and code phase inserted the original defects. Additionally, breakdowns in the test and verification phases failed to identify the defects pre-flight despite their detectability. So NASA is saying these should and could have been found. While both errors could have led to the risk of spacecraft loss, the, ASA, the the actions of the NASA Boeing teams were able to correct the issues and return the Starliner spacecraft safely to Earth
0: yeah this is it's bad, and the fact that there are many of them and this is why we test and you know you can say that, but also there are defects and then they weren't they weren't noticed when the, they were inserted and then they failed to verify them and test them, which is not great I mean, great that they've done it now and figured it out, but also really scary because you're talking about losing the spacecraft, having to fix it from the ground. And potentially having issues, where would the crew have been put in jeopardy uh, if this had been a crewed mission? And it's uh, it's not it's a it's a tough scene. And Boeing's having a hard time anyway, right? Like they they have. Uh, this whole 737 max issue that's going on where they have which is a software problem too, just like mm-hmm. this is that has they've stopped making those planes and they're they're hoping to get them recertified and they've but their factory has stopped in the meantime. and like it has been the CEO resigned. Um, it's been a tough time for Boeing. I know it's a huge organization, and and it's not like the people who are doing the code for the 737 Max are also doing the Starliner code. That's not the case, but it is. I do wonder if there is something cultural going on here. If not, then it's just a really bad set of luck that they have these two things going on at the same time.
1: I mean, we talk a lot about software quality in terms of Apple and other tech companies. We do. Right. And it's one thing to have bugs in your email application on your iPad, but... Obviously, totally different when we're talking about a spacecraft and airplanes. And you're right. Boeing is massive. These are not the same people. These are not the same groups. These are not the same you know, managers or QA people. But I think it does speak to the complexity of these systems. And mm-hmm. now NASA and Boeing have to crawl through this code line by line, millions of lines of code to try to understand not only what's wrong, but in that hopefully understand – why it wasn't detected right. This is part technical, part staffing that they're going to be looking at. And it t- it will take both to fix this. If you have bugs, you need people to catch them. And if you have bugs and don't have people there, then you've got this issue. So it's going to take time to work through this. And I would imagine it will be well into this year before we see Starliner uh, take that second test.
0: Yeah, I think so. So tough one for this half of the commercial crew program but again this is why we test and hopefully they will have learned a lot and the 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 craft will be safer as a result hopefully
1: yep that's that's what you want out of this review you want them to not only fix these issues but make it safer overall I, i would imagine they will find other issues once they're in there and if you can do that and you can overhaul the process that's better for everybody all right, Jason, hit us with the backronym of the week. Okay, backronym of the week is Cheops, characterizing
0: exoplanet satellite. Mm, I, I don't give that a real high score. So, Cheops is a pyramid. Uh, this is not a pyramid, it's a satellite. However, what if I told you that the images it sends back are triangles? They're like <laughs> pyramids. <laughs> May, you, huh maybe uh, uh, let, me, let me explain all right let me explain we'll leave the background aside and we'll, let me explain what cheops is because it's uh pretty cool and it just went online this is from ESA. it's an exoplanet probe obviously you got that out of the name the clever name characterizing exoplanet satellite it was launched in december it's small it um it actually weighs i think it's 58 kilograms plus fuel which is more but um, it's got a 1024 by 1024 pixel image detector, so very small uh, image detector. Cost less than 50 million euros to make it. Um, so more like cheap ops, am I right? Oh boy,
1: oh oh boy, Jason. <laughs> I guess I'm
0: not right. Uh, so anyway, Ops had its first light. Uh, the first images that they got uh, from space, uh, they it's actually one of these great stories where the images are smoother and more symmetrical than they expected when they did all of their kind of lab measurement tests on earth um so it's better than expected which you love to hear after i think all space based sensors have this like hubble telescope thing hanging over them where it's like (laughs) will did we do something wrong it's great um but here's the funny thing the images are actually intentionally blurry which i because they're not meant what they're not trying to do is take pretty pictures they're trying to actually um space out the light uh, spread the light across multiple pixels multiple pixels in the sensor because it lets them get more precise measurements of the light from the stars that they're looking at so if you if you think about um there's some amount of unreliability in uh, an image sensor sure and if you've got a sharply focused image that light the photons are hitting the one image sensor uh the for that one pixel and so what this does is it's out of focus so a light from a star will hit a bunch of sensors and that means that if one sensor is you know a little bit flaky and another sensor is a little bit flaky. They're, they've got a lot of sensors and they're able to take that out and it helps them be more precise in the, in measuring the photons that are coming in, which is super important because as uh, we've talked about before here, one of the methods that you discover exoplanets is by discovering that the light from a star slightly dims because a planet is passing in front of its face as seen from space, from right. the earth or nearby so this is great because that's exactly what Cheops is doing. And so they, uh, they they spread it out. They get more precise light that they can measure and figure out when exoplanets are transiting. Um, and yes, they released this first light image and it's a bunch of little pyramids. So Cheops, they're going to always be branding, Stephen, always be branding. <laughs> um about this since we haven't talked about it before CHEOPS is focusing on planets in the super earth to neptune size range they're not looking for hot jupiters they want to they want to find the this sort of more interesting and less common at least less commonly seen objects it also is not like tess which we've talked about many times. TESS was looking at the whole sky. CHEOPS is focused on a specific set of stars, so it's pointed in one direction, and it's very specifically targeting a bunch of exoplanets that have already been seen via a different method. Now, this means that you can get a second data point, which gives you a third data point. So it's looking at exoplanets that have been spotted by something called the reflex velocity method, and the idea there is that's a method of finding exoplanets where the planet and the star are tugging on each other gravitationally, and it causes a slight redshift. It's amazing that we can even measure this, but it, it actually is measurable. A redshift and a blue shift as the as the star is pulled toward us a little bit by the gravity of a planet, or pulled away from us a little bit by the gravity of a planet. And if you see these cycles of the star being pulled a little bit toward us, pulled a little bit away from us, you can it's wiggling a little bit. And that wiggle is being caused by another object tugging on it gravitationally. So reflex velocity is a way to say there's an exoplanet there. Cheops then looks at these candidate exoplanets, and by looking at the dimming, it can get the... Uh, it, basically, we can end up with the density of the planet, because we can we can learn... Uh, transiting gets you size, right? Transiting, it's all about the amount of coverage of the disk of that star by this planet how much light is it blocking um, reflex velocity gives you mass so they're different measurements and what's great is that you put them together and you get the density of the planet which means these exoplanet candidates that Cheops is looking at are going to we're going to be able to confirm their identity as are they a rocky planet are they a gas planet are they you know are they a, a neptune are they uh, an earth or super earth um which One of these methods can't get you. But if you put the two methods together, you get a much better sense of uh, what kind of planet we're looking at. And they're also, they've got a whole bunch of other things. They do want to find new exoplanets in the direction that they're pointing. Um, And also they, they hope that they might actually even be able to get a little bit of information about things that we don't have a lot of information about, about exoplanets, like their atmospheres, maybe if they have rings, and even tantalizingly the possibility of (laughs) exomoons that's totally amazing yeah from this from this little uh little relatively cheap uh, exoplanet finder cheops so i'm sure we're going to be getting science news out of this about more exoplanet discoveries in the months to come but um it's up and running so more exoplanet hunters are out there in space now it's fantastic cheops well maybe not the name but it's
1: it's cool anyway uh, over the weekend, we saw the launch of the Solar Orbiter. This is a collaborative mission between ESA and NASA to study the Sun. And you could say, well, we're already doing that with the uh, Parker Solar Probe. What, what makes this special is that its orbit, once it it gets into orbit, which I'll talk about in a second, will uh, bring the spacecraft in, uh, into a place where it can study the poles of the sun, which is not something that we have a lot of information about. There was a mission, I think in the nineties that it was on an inclined orbit. So we, we got closer, but this is to study the poles of the sun. So it is going to uh, take a little while to get there. We talk about this in, in the outer solar system a lot that you have to uh, have trajectory changes and gravity assist to get where you're going. And because this orbit is going to be out of plane with the planets, uh, it has three gravity assists to help speed it up, so it can it can make that move two past Venus, uh, one at the end of this year, and one in August twenty twenty one, and then uh, past Earth one time in November twenty one, and then its first close pass of the sun will take place in twenty twenty two. So it's going to take some time to get it uh, into uh, this orbit that's going to uh, going to need to be in. But it has instruments to use it during that that intermediate time, so there are instruments aboard for those close passes. But while it is doing all these gravity assists and going around, it is going to be detecting things like electric and magnetic fields, uh, passing uh, particles in the solar wind, not unlike the uh, Parker Solar Probe, and studying that from a different point of view. Uh, and then it sort of change gears once it gets close, and it will make uh, 22 of those close passes. Um, it will bring the spacecraft within the orbit of Mercury on those passes. So really close, and again, looking at the the poles of our star. It's exciting. It's pretty cool.
0: Yes, it's uh, so. There's a nice Ars Technica story that we'll link to. Um, that is by Eric Berger, of course, because he is their space guy, um, and it's a good story about the golden age of of solar science Um, because in addition to the parker solar probe which is on its way and the solar orbiter which is um, on its way there's also the daniel inoue solar telescope which is on haleakala and maui hawaii which is the world's largest solar telescope it just went online and you may have seen it. There was an image going around that, that was like these things that looked like popcorn or gold nuggets or something like that. But It's actually mm-hmm. the highest resolution image of the surface of the sun we've ever had. And these little popcorn uh, kernels that are in that image, each one of them is the size of Texas, or if you are European and prefer it, the size of France. It's big because the sun is really big. But that telescope is now online, too, and will be giving us perspectives of the sun that we've never seen before. And there's in in Eric's story on ours, there uh, is somebody quoted who who says, basically, in the next decade, we're going to do enormous amounts of solar science like this is we are probably going to learn more about the sun in this next decade than we have uh, in any other decade i don't know what the superlative is there but this is this is a big deal there's a lot of really great science a lot of really great instruments coming online spacecraft for us to understand the sun which is super important because you know the sun is the center of our solar system it's the source of everything it's the source of energy and life and it's important and uh when it gets cranky that can fry our Electrical grids and our telescopes and things like that. And believe it or not, as much as we know about how stars work, there's a lot of things we don't really understand about how stars work and how the sun works because it's such a complicated, chaotic environment. So, pretty cool. Um, we're going to learn a lot more about the sun.
1: Really exciting stuff. So, this yeah. will be a mission, I think, like we did with Juno. We will check in as it is making uh, these gravity assist. And I'm sure yeah. we will talk a lot more about it once we start learning about the data that it's capturing.
0: Yeah, just like we did with the Parker Solar Probe, same thing, right? Because it's, it's really hard because of gravity and being in the ecliptic plane and getting close because the Parker Solar Probe has to get really close, which means he has to do like a Mercury flyby. And it, it's hard to get to the places where you can observe the sun. That's why we haven't done it yet. But there are two missions now on the way to do that. So very exciting. Missions to the sun. Not like that movie where everybody... <laughs> Does everybody die in sunshine? I don't know. Anyway, no spoilers for sunshine cuz I don't remember it. I don't think I've ever seen it. Danny Boyle Sunshine. I kind of liked it. People hate it and think it's terrible and the science is very very bad, but I kind of mm. liked it. Anyway, uh this is not that. There are no people and uh no horrible things will happen therefore, which is good
1: cuz that's what happens in sunshine by Danny Boyle. Sounds like a member special wing to happen.
0: Oh man. Oh yeah, I do that. I'll put it on the list.
1: Okay. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to touch base real quick about Voyager. There was a, a story at the end of January that Voyager 2 uh, had experienced some problems. So we we spoke about Voyager uh, a good bit. I'll have a um, link in the show notes to our Voyager episode. I think it was episode 44 of Liftoff where we talked about those space probes and what they've accomplished in their very long lives. But the team working with Voyager 2 uh, needed to calibrate one of the instruments on board, and that required— Uh, spinning the spacecraft 360 degrees, uh, and it calibrates the onboard magnetic field instrument. So you got to take the probe and spin it, and then that instrument is ready to go. And during that process, uh, the move failed to execute as expected. And so the instrument systems stayed on longer than expected because they weren't calibrated and they didn't know what was going on. And the spacecraft is designed to shut its instruments down to preserve power if this happened. And as we spoke about on those episodes, Voyagers have very little reserve left in the tank at this point. And so it's it's good that it, it shut these instruments down as designed instead of leaving them on and shortening its lifespan. But of course, there's always concerns with spacecraft this far out and this old that uh, an anomaly could be the last we hear from it. In fact, it's so far away it takes 17 hours for communication to reach the spacecraft, and then 17 hours for a response back. So it's it's like 34 hours. I mean, it's it's like you know asking so- somebody for something and hearing back what two and a half days later. But the team was able mm. to send the send the communication, tell the probe what to do, and it uh, basically came back online as expected and is checking, they're checking it out for further issues, trying to understand why this maneuver didn't take place as expected. If it's unable to spin in this 360 degree motion, it may be that this instrument is off the table for future use because it's required for the calibration. But I think they will know more in the coming weeks as they continue to, to look through the diagnostics and trying to understand what happened in this instance.
0: Yeah. I, I just love the idea that you, you know, you send your command and then you Go out for a long weekend and come back <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, find
0: out whether it worked or not. That is tough to troubleshoot. I know they've got like a, a simulated one that they can – that they, they troubleshoot on and all that. But it's – uh and this is extremely old technology. So mm-hmm. keeping it working uh, from something from the 70s in 2020,
1: amazing. It is. We, we spoke about that on that episode of like how small the team is compared to w- once hmm. it, what it once was. And some of the computers they use are like one of a kind at this point. It's like – Yeah, the, the, and <laughs> – like, most of the people on
0: the team, like, have retired, mm-hmm. and so it's hard to get people on the team, and it's it's quite a thing, but they're still it's still doing science. That's the thing. It's still doing science, and you don't want to, the last thing you want to do is flip off the, you know, all the switches and be like, forget it, we're, we're done yep. here, when there's still uh, things that we can learn because it's so far out.
1: Yes, interstellar space, we uh, don't have a lot of opportunity to study that, so. That's
0: right. It's a when rare you, opportunity. It takes well, a long time to get out there
1: want to keep the Voyagers going as long as possible. Uh-huh. All right, let's take a break. And I'd like to tell you about our sponsor this week, and that is Squarespace. You can make your next move with Squarespace because it has all of the tools that you need to easily create a website for your next idea. You're going to need a domain name. Squarespace can help with that. A bunch of award wing templates that look awesome. They're beautifully designed. They have tons to choose from. They have tools for online stores and portfolios and blogs and podcast hosting on and on, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do what you need to do. There's nothing to install. There are no patches to worry about. No upgrades are needed. You don't have to worry about that sort of stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. If you have questions, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support, and their system makes it easy to grab a unique domain name and to choose and customize an award-winning template. I've spoken a lot about building Squarespace sites for clients, businesses in town, and I just handed the keys to a site over to a client just a couple of weeks ago, built them a site for their business, you know, got all the content in, and it's up to them now to update that content, add pictures. And I was showing the business owner how it worked, and they wanted to add a gallery to one of the pages to show off their space. And we had all the pictures in a folder, and I showed them how easy it was to create a gallery. And within a few minutes – they had what they wanted on their website, and that's, that's really cool. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial today with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for the support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, Stephen,
0: mm-hmm. it's time for the state of NASA and the budget. And you know, one of the themes of this show is it's not just space, it's not just science, it's also politics and money and influence. And the day that is probably the biggest day of the year in terms of the political ramifications of um, NASA's budget is now. The the uh, NASA budgets, the dueling budgets, the negotiations that are going to have to happen between the administration and Congress, two different houses of Congress run by different parties. There's a lot going on. And you, thankfully, have just dug in to what is going on. So tell me, I want to hear, because I don't know, I don't understand this. Um, You did the work, so I didn't have to. So tell me, (laughs) what's going
1: on? I've been eyeball deep in government PDFs for the last 24 hours. You love it, admit it. I do love it. Uh, And I have a bunch of those PDFs linked in the show notes, so you can love it too, dear listener. Yay! So let's start with what this budget calls for, and then we can talk about what the administration... The White House says it could cut to make that budget possible. And then we'll talk about what Congress may do. Does that work? Sounds good. So this budget provides $25.2 billion for NASA in fiscal year 2021. That is a 12% increase from the enacted level. So the level the agency got in 2020. So a big jump. Remember, Brian Stein had asked for increased funding to make Artemis by 2024 possible. This is the White House basically meeting his request. 12.3 billion of that, so a little less than half, is for support of the systems, uh, faculty, facilities, et cetera, needed to land and operate on the moon and to prepare for a future human landing on Mars. So, this moon to Mars language is back. That's a little bit of a nod to the congressional budget that was put forth a couple of weeks ago, where there's, I mean, there's language in that budget of you're actually not going to do anything on the moon that doesn't get us to Mars. And so, this is. A little bit of a nod to that, I think. Uh, the budget provides sustained, robust funding from fiscal year 2021 through 2025 for human exploration. Again, with Artemis 2024 in mind, uh, these numbers include $3.3 billion in 2021 to support the development of a human lander system. Uh, for, the, for the moon that will take astronauts from orbit around the moon from Gateway uh, down to the surface. NASA is in the middle of working with a bunch of companies. We've talked about this recently to develop human lunar landers. And so $3.3 billion for that program, $4 billion provided for SLS and Orion and associated ground systems, 175 million for lunar suits and 212 million for initial work on a surface habitat and rovers. Just uh NASA wants to spend more time on the moon than just walking around and then going back up to the gateway. They want sustained presence. 430 million for a lunar surface innovation initiative that will enable human and robotic exploration on the moon and future operations on Mars. It's unclear what is covered in that that isn't covered in the previous item. I'm I'm unsure about that, but this would be an initiative for those sorts of activities. And then $529 million for robotic exploration of Mars with an eye cut towards future human exploration, including a future sample return mission, which is uh, partially in play with the Mars 2020 rover. This would be part two of that. It's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of money, Mm. uh, a lot of increases to anything important uh, to getting to the moon. And buried in the uh, complete fiscal year 21 PDF, starts on page 92, if you want to go read it, are the cuts that the White House and the administration proposed to help offset the additional funding for Artemis. And I could pretty much copy and paste what we talked about last year and the year before. Right, because
0: because the way this works is that the the administration always says, here's what we want to do. Uh, Congress has already said what they want to do. And then there ends up being a compromise. um, And a lot of the stuff that the administration wants to kill ends up getting put back in. And then the next year, they just do it again. And it gets taken out again. And so it's one of those things where administration has their opinion, um, but then the House and the Senate will work on what their take is. And then the administration is like, all right, you know, you, you, you win this time. So they're cutting a bunch of the same, they're proposing cuts that we've already seen and haven't happened yet and perhaps will continue to not happen.
1: A lot of similar stuff right off the top. Again, trying to cut NASA's Office of STEM Engagement. This has been every year. The Trump administration has tried to do this. Every year, Congress says no. Uh, it's back on the potential cutting block, cutting floor, cutting floor this year. Uh, the The budget proposes to terminate operations of SOFIA, which is the airborne observatory. It's the telescope in the side of an airplane, which I think we've talked about on the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The budget, the language in there is that the science productivity for the telescope falls short of the expense, uh, which is like $80 million dollars. And the White House says that the James Webb overlaps with some of this, which is not completely untrue. This uh, program was tried to get cut like back in like 2015, uh, years and years ago, and has continued on. But it is it is on the list. Uh, now we're gonna talk about the SLS, which is really interesting. Uh, kick funding for the Block One B down the road indefinitely. There's no language in the budget about when Block One B funding would take place nasa and the administration say 1b isn't necessary for going to the moon and we can do everything we want to do with the regular sls and a increased amount of language about commercial partners so flying on the falcon heavy flying on ula rockets to get things like gateway and other components of artemis to the moon right and and then just using SLS for people. Right. That has changed over the years. And there's actually something else about the SLS we're going to talk about in a second that is different this year. But um, it is a saying, hey, we actually don't need S- SLS for everything. We're still going to build it. We're going to postpone the more powerful version of it, which is all very interesting. The budget proposes to terminate two Earth science missions, um, the PACE mission, and uh Claro, which is the Climate Absolute Radiance and Refract- Refractivity Observatory. Whew, it's a lot of words. Um, these are, you know, there are signs of stuff that NASA or that the administration has tried to cut in the past. So again, not any real big surprises here. And then our friend W first, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. Again, the administration is saying we need to focus on the James Webb that's still in development. We're not ready to proceed with another space telescope. W first, of course, is highly prized by the scientific community, and it is something that Congress has not let the Trump administration cut. It has continued to survive uh, now three years of (laughs) trying to get rid of it. So not a lot of changes, but one that I think is really going to raise eyebrows in Congress is the Europa mission. So we've spoken about this, how... NASA is mandated by Congress to use the SLS to fly the Europa Clipper mission whenever it's ready. And NASA's budget says, well, if we use the Falcon Heavy or the Delta IV Heavy, we could save $1.5 billion, which is something you, we, you and I have spoken about, how the is, this shouldn't be yep. tied to the SLS necessarily, uh, and how Congress views the SLS as good because it employs people in all 50 states. And there's manufacturing companies and all sorts of vendors in all 50 states. And all that's good and important. But the administration says, look, that's $1.5 billion we can spend somewhere else if we just put the clipper on top of a commercial rocket. I think that's going to be an argument point for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, and again, every every one of these ends
0: up being a negotiation. And the funny thing about the way these budgets works is is this is an administration budget, and we think, well, the administration and the Republicans in the Senate, so they're going to be on the same page. And th- this administration didn't even get the budget it wanted when it was Republicans in the House and the Senate. Right. Senate and and, and the House have their own minds, and so this is one of those things where, uh, since this is a giant budget of the whole government. Unless the administration says, well, no, we're not going to sign the budget and we're going to go into you know a shutdown um, unless you get us what you want on the NASA budget, which basically doesn't happen. Um, the House and the Senate know that if they can come to an agreement that is palatable enough to the administration, it'll go through. So the administration can take these stands, but then the House and the Senate will work out something and the administration is, you know, in, in large it'll be something that the president will sign even if it they don't get all the things that they wanted.
1: Yeah, my guess is based on the the previous years is that these major cuts will not be granted and that the NASA budget will increase, but not to the point that they want. And that Brian Stein and others will say, well, that means that, you know, Artemis will will take longer than expected. I just I don't see the increase happening, and I don't see all the cuts happening either. I think it's gonna be pretty much business as usual. Here's a little bit more funding, keep building the SLS. You gotta use it with the Europa Clipper, and the rest of it is gonna keep going as it has been the last couple of years. I don't I don't foresee anything radical this fiscal year. Yeah, I agree. It's a lot of government PDFs, Jason. Just so many. It is. They don't use very good fonts, but at least they're all OCR, so you can copy and paste text out of them, which I appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, thank you, government employee. Yeah, and I, I think I agree that um, the
0: places to watch. It's probably the stuff's going to get restored. You know, the Office of STEM engagement and and uh, the fact that W first is a, a decadal priority. It's going to be hard to to cut it, but um, the real action is going to be on what happens with SLS, what it happens on the Artemis project how does that get funded what what gets kicked down the road a little bit Um, there's a real question about you know is the congress willing to fund the what the administration wants for uh, moon landing or are they going to fund something as we've seen in some of the budgets that kind of say well there there will be a moon landing but it won't necessarily happen by 2024 Mm -hmm. and there's just that's where we're going to see a lot of the details is artemis sls and Europa. So we'll see what comes out. But in the end it's gonna be backroom negotiations between um the House and Senate that resolve this.
1: Yeah. And as this heats up we'll see Brian Stein wade into it because of his, his background. He is much more willing to engage than I think previous NASA administrators, for better or for worse. And I, I expect that some of this will uh will play out in the in the coming weeks and we will uh keep an eye on it because that's that's what we do. That's what I do. I don't think Jason is excited as as I am. Uh, it, mm. it is funny to me. I was following along with like the state of NASA stuff uh, on Twitter this week. And I had a friend who is a NASA social member this time. And it struck me, even though we attended this two years ago, like <laughs> NASA may be one of the only government agencies that makes an event out of announcing its budget. Like, that's really what it is. I mean, he uses it as an opportunity to update the public on ongoing projects. But at the heart of it, it's... A budget and I I that that's kind of cracked me up this time for the first time. I think uh I think that does it for this fortnight. I think so. We got we got some money in there. We also got some uh
0: spacecraft and some science and uh that sounds like an episode of liftoff to me. Some uh, triangle pictures.
1: Yay. If you want to read more about uh what we've spoken about, head on over to the website relay.fm liftoff one seventeen While you're there, you can get in touch with email, with uh, feedback, or follow-up. Or you can find us over on Twitter. You can find Jason there as J. Snell, and you can follow me as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.